0: To feel like you're not a part of that cash out monetarily like that's not always for you to take you can negotiate for it you can bargain for it you can feel like it's yours but at the end of the day if you don't own that company it's not yours
1: back to the tmba pod in fact today we're welcoming you back to the pod shop sitting in ian's garage live from the ranchette ian and i did a really fun one today an episode where we dig into your thoughts your queries your questions and obsessions oh yes we are going to rifle through and respond to emails from you so the first is from Miko references a comment I made about one of the badges I sometimes see entrepreneurs wear and sometimes literally with pride that they work for themselves because they are basically quote unemployable. And the question here is, is this really a positive trait? So here's Mikko's thoughts. Hey Dan, the part where you mentioned the famous unemployable shirt has been stuck in my head All day. I completely understand what you mean by your comments about the shirt. That these people are proud that they can't work in a team or work well with others is ludicrous. However, I think there might be something else at play here. One of the reasons I've really struggled working for others is that I feel I have no ownership. My first foray into online business was working with an Amazon FBA brand, I was their only hire other than some part-time VA help, and they brought me on as an apprentice, TMBA style. But after a year of working together, they told me that they would have to be slashing my pay by 50% because they were selling the business. After that, I worked with a friend of mine at his agency. However, when we lost a few clients and the revenue dropped, he told me he could no longer afford to pay me. I want to be clear, I feel no ill will towards any of these people, but this has in some ways left me feeling unemployable. In the back of my head is constantly this question of why should I give someone my A-game? I have no ownership over the business and receive no direct return on my hard work. Not to mention that when it's time to cash in the chips, my hard work is really just someone else's payday. Why wouldn't I just do whatever I have to do to get by while working on a side hustle that will hopefully one day become my full-time business? Is this not the definition of unemployable? Someone who can never give their A-game to a company because they are saving it for their own ventures. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Cheers and happy cycling, Mikko. I think it makes sense for us to get to some principles about being unemployable and how to approach some ideas of how much effort you might want to give to your work or to your employment. But I'd like to talk about some specifics of Mikko's email and also some, you know, general ideas about this, this idea of being unemployable, which is it's a t-shirt I've seen around. That's just typically black. And it just says unemployable. You think of like a punk rock t-shirt, like a Ramones t-shirt or like, Mm -hmm. Hey, screw you, man. You know, F the system kind of thing. It's this idea You're sort of like giving the bat signal out to other entrepreneurs saying, Hey, I'm too crazy. I'm too much my own person. I just cannot be in a team, man. What's interesting is a little bit of what Mikko's saying. There is a little bit of this punk rock kind of mindset. Like, agree. You know, like, I don't want to sell out to the man. I don't want to work for somebody, you know, unless it's mine. And it's like, well, How's that working out for you? That is a little bit of the critique here. And so I do think it's cool, the territory that we're wading into here, which you have this attitude that you're not willing to play by the rules, that you're not willing to prostrate yourself to do something bigger than yourself unless you get a piece. But after a year of working together, so this is when the author was working for an Amazon FBA brand, they told me that they would be Slashing my pay by 50% because they were selling the business. First thing that came up to my mind was I was around
0: before Amazon FPA companies even existed. Point being, haven't been in the game a long time. That's the reality of it. The other reality is that you took a position as basically an intern at a company that hadn't been around for a long time. So, what that tells me right off the bat, not that you're not super intelligent, bright, gifted, all these things. But you aren't necessarily skilled yet. That's the reason why you found yourself in this position and at that pay level was because that was where your competency lied at that time. Just, you know, general overview 30,000 feet. Maybe you didn't enter this job privileged because you didn't have a lot of experience. And that makes sense to me, right? You're just starting out. So to expect the outcome to be anything different than I was laid off and I got 50% less than my pay,
1: sounds about right for the way that you came into the company, first off. Let's revisit my favorite trope now. It's called the thousand day principle. It's this idea that building a business is so hard. And we're talking about later in this email, we get down to this idea of a side hustle, which is idea that you need three years of full-time effort to make back that salary on your own. Now, if you're doing it as a side hustle, well, geez, is it going to take three years or is it going to take five or six? So by the way, I'm going to be doing this podcast 15 years from now with my senile, egotistic mind trying to call everything the 1,000-day principle. Mm -hmm. I'm going to wear a t-shirt that says it'll take three three years. (laughs) Okay. Well, one of the things that I think is a little bit glossed over in that is, well, how long does it take you to get to day one? What does day one look like? Like if you graduate college and put up a business and all of a sudden day one, that's not what it looked like for most of us. Most of us go through an apprentice phase. Most of us go through an early career phase or a career shift, a mid-career shift. These things take a lot of time and it often can take years. So for example, I don't think it would be weird to think that it might take you Three years of working a normal job or more to get to the point where you have the resources, social capital, relationships, skill set in order to make that jump and start your 1000 days. So, if you thought the 1000 day principle was relatively bleak, man, it's going to take me like three years just to get back to normal. Well, sometimes it takes people like the better part of a decade to actually get there.
0: But the good news is that you're getting out of this apprenticeship questioning what you just did you say like okay that's a good news. kind of gave it gave it my all they sold i didn't get anything that's a good question to have at the end of that and that's fair but i don't think i'm quite yet to the like i'm unemployable like man i can't do that again like that was awful me because i'm not that smart i'll be like okay put well, me in the game again coach <laughs> i could do this you know
1: one of the things i've been interested in as a concept in our business one of the tests I have for writing an effective sales letter, for example, I call it the coffee table test. And the test goes like this. You imagine yourself sitting across the table from one of the smartest entrepreneurs that that you can imagine that you've met in real life and you really kind of have a sense for who this avatar is. And I have a bunch of people in my mind that I sit across the table from, but one of them is Justin Cook from the Empire Flippers. Because he's fearless in asking you critical questions about what you're doing. He'll just jump right in and be like, well, have you ever thought about doing it this way? Or why are you charging that much? And so Justin Cook is always, for me, a good coffee table test guy. You're another good coffee table test. Whatever. Come up with a coffee table person. And you write the sales letter as if that person's sitting across the table from you at the coffee test. And what is the point of it? The point is that your sales letter your contract with your employer, they are abstractions of a reality. Why am I bringing up all this? Why didn't you know they were going to sell the business? Why did they need to sell the business? Why wasn't it growing? Why was it failing? Why was it succeeding? These questions, in other words, predate the ownership question. Ownership is often an abstraction, an indication that happens after the idea that you own something. Right. So the
0: idea is if you had ownership throughout that process, like if you're an integral part of that team, or if you were somebody that was indispensable, you would have been in the middle of these conversations.
1: Yes. And also, well, let me just fast forward a little bit in the email, Ian, if I may, because I think it'll help us out here. After that, I worked with a friend of mine at his agency, However, we lost a few clients and the revenue dropped and he told me he could no longer afford to pay me. Okay. Again, this is written with no offense, like an employee, ownership is a power role and it's often awarded to people who wield real power. So if we're looking at the actual underlying power dynamics, there's a bunch of questions we can ask that are very fruitful from there. For example, why did you lose the clients? Why can't you get them back? Why aren't you a priority to be paid? Why did you choose to work for somebody who can't afford to pay you? There's just so many questions. And all of a sudden, if you take on that responsibility of behaving like an owner before you're an owner, eventually you might accrue the sort of power that allows you to get that thing. This kind of, I don't want to give my A effort because I don't want to be taken advantage of. And so I want to act like I think I'm supposed to act because I understand about entrepreneurship and I understand about the power of businesses and I don't want to be taken advantage of. And I think that those things are all laudable and I admire them. But I've seen it happen multiple times in my career where someone that's smart that doesn't necessarily know how to wield all their potential just yet tries to do the right thing by behaving like an owner in quotations. They want the abstraction before the reality happens. If you could imagine a little boy walking out in dad's shoes because he wants to be like dad, you know, so he's like, he's wearing these big old boots that he can't quite walk around mm-hmm. in yet, but he knows that's the where he wants to end up one day where it's like you're trying to use a a tool that might be a little bit too advanced for you, but you know you want to end up to be a master at that tool. It's a common thing. It's easier to grok the abstraction, this idea of, well, I won't work for you unless there's equity involved, rather than the reality, which is actually wielding real, true organizational power. By the time you have the kind of organizational power that you can negotiate ownership and equity... It's not going to be that hard to negotiate it, probably, typically. That's one little heuristic. Here's another. Ian, I want you to imagine yourself in two different scenarios. One, you're getting paid a full-time living. You have existing clients, existing ways to get them. You have an existing brand, company, small freelance team. Now, you happen to have this thing called a boss, and you happen to have this thing called no equity. But you know, they're not nearly as important as you know your salary, your day to day operations, and everything. Now, on the other hand, you have basically none of those things, but you still have your talent, and you can apply that talent however you want. But you're basically starting from scratch. Where do you have more power? So it kind of probably depends on what kind of power you want
0: because when you're on your own, you got the, one of those little Fisher Price drills, you know the ones that like you can't hurt yourself with. You touch it on your knee, and it just stops. And then the other tool is like the badass Makita that I have here in the shop, right? And right. Like you put it on your leg and you're, you're ripping a hole through your skin. <laughs> I mean, that's the power of the team. That's the power of clients. That's the power of a, a bank account and all these other things.
1: To borrow a concept from you, this is a concept of working with house money.
0: I'll explain the house money thing we've said this several times to people that have come into our organization and kind of had this same idea or this same trajectory. It's like, well, eventually I want to be my own entrepreneur. Eventually I want to own my own business. But for now, I I I want to learn and I want to learn from you guys. Because when you come into our organization, I think that that's kind of what's on the table. It's like, hey, a lot of times, depending on the project we're working on, it's not going to be a bunch of money, but I'll show you everything I know. And in exchange, like, this idea of playing with house money comes out, which is basically, here's my platform. Here's all of our resources, like use it. And I'm going to teach you how to use it. And the advantage is that when we win or lose money, it's not actually your money. It's house money. It really depends on where you're at in your journey and in your trajectory. If you're finding yourself a 15-year veteran with like all these ideas and expertise and whatnot, and you're and you're an intern, you're probably in the wrong situation. Well,
1: let's get back to what you said about real power versus power, which is, look, if you're dropping clients and you're not getting paid and you're if you can't control these things with resources placed all around you, if you can't find a way to be persuasive. If you can't find a way to create a coalition, if you can't find a way to grow the clientele and all these kinds of basic things to running an organization, wait until you have to do it all yourself. And that's the basic idea, which is you're Training at scale with house money. It's an old metaphor or image I've used multiple times, which is the downhill fixie. It's the bicycle where the gearing is one to one with the back wheel and the bike's going downhill and you're jumping on it. And the idea is to see if you can actually keep your legs up with the damn thing. That's what it's like when you're working in someone else's organization. And it's this idea of like, oh, we lost clients and I can't control. What do you mean you can't control somebody else's company? that's not true. The moment you give somebody equity in a company, it's not necessarily going to change their behavior at all. Because the skill set of ownership, of being able to affect organizations, is not correlated with how much that person owns of the company.
0: Touch on this idea of uh, cash out and the idea that you weren't a part of the cash out your income got slashed by 50% and the company got sold. If you're climbing the stairs right, and you're figuring out how to become an entrepreneur, and you're figuring out how to play with house money and these organizations, you will cash out in that situation. And it doesn't necessarily need to be monetarily. You should feel confident that you left with everything that you plan to leave with, like your experience, your contacts, technical skills, things like that. Like, There's a lot of ways to cash out in that situation. Other thing I'll mention about this cash out thing that I think like I'm real sensitive about as like an entrepreneur is like a lot of times people come into these organizations, sometimes even our organizations, and they don't understand what the entrepreneur has had to do to get in that situation where they can cash out or they they can have that company. Like, for example, they had to work for 10 years or, for example, they had to not go on vacations. For example, they had to hire a bunch of interns in, <laughs> and manage them for five years, right? And so... To feel like you're not a part of that cash out monetarily, like that's not always for you to take. Like that's not always yours. Like you can negotiate for it. You can bargain for it. You can feel like it's yours. But at the end of the day, if you don't own that company, it's not yours. And that decision is not up to you.
1: Well, a lot of times these things boil down to understanding the mechanics at play. Here's a basic mechanic. Like if you find yourself instead of with a string of employers that bad things are happening or you're not... I mean, look, this is a pattern. It's worth exploring. Here's another pattern. What if you're in three straight businesses and they all cash out? That's a pretty interesting pattern that you're a part of there, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sort of like the caddy who's on the bag of the golfer who wins the Masters or whatever. Eventually, if you're on the winning team enough times, you are going to run your own winning team. You see it all the time. PayPal mafia. And nobody from the outside
0: thinks it's luck either. That's the thing is like, oh, that, that guy, just happened to be the caddy for, for three uh, PGA champions. Like, no, he didn't just happen to be.
1: Often it is it is not luck, especially if you're looking at a business model like agencies. Agencies are a business model that is highly correlated with entrepreneurial skill. And so, you know, we used to work for an agency, for example, and like, the amount of sales and profit we had in any given year was very correlated to the market, of course. But within that market, the deviations had a lot to do with skill, you know, and how hard you hustled. And it's the sort of business that you can pick up the phone and make money. And so, if you know how to do that, then you know, provided we're not in a a big squeeze or whatever, you should be able to have a big impact on that business, you know. And so. That's one answer as to why should I give someone my A game is because winning teams require A contributions. And if you don't give an A contribution, your team might not win. A players get paid in ways that are illegible at the time you're making the upfront investment often. It's almost like a B player mood to be like, here's my equity share, here's the amount I'm gonna get paid on. It's like The real wins are the ones that it's kind of like nothing, 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 nothing. Bang, I own a company. And those opportunities come up when you make A contribution. It's not
0: nothing though, right? We already talked about this. It's like, well, what I learned. Oh, I learned how to do this in that company. Oh, I learned how to negotiate these kinds of contracts in that
1: company. Oh, I learned. So it's not nothing. It might not be. Let me define A input. So A input, there's two things. The first is they act like an owner. And so... If you act like an owner effectively, you should have the confidence and the trust and the buy-in from the ownership. They should treat you like you're part of the board. And this is closely associated with another A input, which is they know how to manage up. And so if you find yourself repeatedly mystified by the behavior of your owner, it might be the case that for whatever reason you know, these people don't quite trust you with the information that they've been planning to sell the company for the past year. And I'll tell you what, if you haven't let the owner know that you're willing to sacrifice yourself for the company to contribute to an A team, they won't let you know they're going to sell the company because they know what a selfish person's going to do the moment mm-hmm. they hear that information, yeah. right? So part of the way that you manage up and you make an A contribution is that you let your ownership know that your aims are bigger than the immediate aims of your salary, your paycheck, and the company. Let me tell a story about the moment I quit my job. I don't, I don't think it ever got on the podcast. When I quit my last job, the first words out of my boss's mouth were, you can't do that. And then I was like, well, what do you mean I can't quit? And he was like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I'm going to do some random thing I don't really know. And he's like, okay, well, I want to be a part of it. And again, it's this idea of value over replacement. It's the end of the story. The equity is the thing that happens at the thousand days, not the first day. Let's go
0: back to that real quick. Your boss comes up to you and he's like, I want to be a part of whatever you're doing going forward, or "Or you can't do that. Like We need to stay attached. Like. If you're writing this email to us, or if you're listening to this podcast, like imagine if your boss would say that about you right now. I think that that's a that's a great test to run. And if the answer is no, then you might not be providing the kind of value that that organization or that that owner needs. Have right? you
1: become indispensable? If you're anxious about your business finances, a lot of us are. If you don't have confidence in your numbers. And you're not sure if you're headed in the right direction, if things are going up or down. Well, today's sponsor has an offer for you. Being Ninjas is an online bookkeeping and financial education company that's been helping entrepreneurs achieve freedom through stress-free finances for almost five years. They were recently awarded Zero Bookkeeping Partner of the Year in 2019. Founder and CEO Merrill Johnson is a member of our community, the DC, and has been on this podcast several times. The Bean Ninjas are legit. They really understand the issues unique to running online businesses like we talk about here at the TMBA. Now, Bean Ninjas is offering to train you on how to effectively use Zero to manage your finances with their How to Do Your Bookkeeping in Zero online course. This course is basically a 5-week mentorship where you can work closely with a financial coach and a small group of like-minded entrepreneurs. There's also a DIY option available. So, Here's their offer. Head on over to BeanNinjas.com slash TMBA to sign up and get 25% off the coupon code provided. This five-week mentorship program is usually 3 dollars but today, by using that special link from the TMBA, it's available for 2 dollars If you're someone who gets overwhelmed with not knowing what's going on money-wise with your business, be sure to head on over to BeanNinjas.com slash TMBA. So I just want to briefly pick up on the second part of Mikko's dilemma. And by the way, we're just using Mikko as an example because I think this is a very valid and common question in many entrepreneurs' minds. It's not like a direct conversation with them or anything. So Mikko, I appreciate the question and giving us an opportunity to talk about this topic. The point I wanted to underline was this. Wouldn't it be better to forgo making myself an indispensable A player in favor of taking maybe a D or F player role in order to focus my mental RAM on starting a side hustle that might turn into something I own and and profit from 100%. And this is something we've often referred to as the shower time test. But here's the thing. If you're going to do that, as our forthcoming example is going to suggest, it might be worth considering where to play your D game. If you're working a job you really don't care about, but you're getting paid
0: and you're starting a side hustle, like your shower time goes to your side hustle. But the idea is basically I take my paycheck and then I convert it into this other thing and all my good energy goes into this other thing. I think that's what being a D or an F player means.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it makes me think back to that A player, especially the B player, which is like the biggest bummer. B stands for bummer, which is you know, it doesn't make sense to have a job. that's such a big part of your life that you're not all in on, that you're not pushing to find where it can lead and call it karma if you want. But I think that idea of being in an A-type position, but being about it, you know, that is the worst position to be in. It's such a big fat bummer because you're just like, so close but no cigar to like the big next opportunity the adjacent niche the follow up business you're like one selfish comment or mismove from breaking trust that only a few short months from now you could walk into your ex employer's office and say hey how about you know you run an agency that serves these people how about you put 15 grand up. We'll start an agency that serves these people. You saw how I manage your clients. You saw how I got them. Why don't we do it adjacently and own it together? Don't waste your time. Go all in. Be an A player. Do you remember a time where you were a D or an F player?
0: And it's rare because I'm an A player in these jobs. But (laughs) when I moved out to San Diego, my idea was to get a design job and. That didn't happen right away, so I had to fill the gaps. So, uh, was a uh, barback at 26 years old and a valet because uh, I'd been a valet before, and barback was just one of the things that I fell into. And so, for me, those jobs uh, were purely sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Like the only reason I was there was like figure out how I was going to become a designer and
1: like how I was going to have as much fun as possible. What's crazy about that situation is. Let me tell you a little story about a guy I know called Ian Schoen. He was a D player at a valet parking company and then ended up supplying those companies with those products because you knew when you were trying to do your D job that those products weren't actually all that great that you were interacting with every day. And so you actually did ascend. And then just a few years later, the owners of those companies would be shaking your hand at trade shows buying tens of thousands of dollars worth of product from you is exactly what this model predicts that you either go a or you go d please don't go b it's a bummer one of the things i want to say to mikko the author of this letter is there's no right answer here you got to do you that's what this ultimately boils down to you got to do you so this is such a deep and rich topic and the way he presented it was rich and the way we th- responded I think got us thinking quite a bit. So to me this isn't an issue of hard and fast rules and necessarily even of advice giving but simply of thinking about this topic and everybody's got to think through it. But the problem is is if you leave a resource rich environment and you go then to a resource poor environment which is a, your starting own starting your own company starting your own company you might get into the situation where that side project, which is not going to take three, is going to take five years. You might be on year four or five asking yourself questions that you could have easily asked and addressed by being an A player. In the context of an organization exactly.
0: that has resources, playing
1: with house money. Being around people who are incentivized.
0: Here, I'll just say this, Dan. I mean, let's get back to our origin story. I think it's, it's relevant. You actually touched on it in this episode which is basically we went to our boss at the time and we said hey we're going to do this it's related to what we're currently doing now but we're just going to like do it on our own and we want you to be a part of it
1: there's more to that gaining real power over years and years of ownership like behavior so that at the time you cut a new style of deal it becomes obvious that you ought to be an owner it's complex to talk about the specifics of that situation. Maybe not, but one of the simple things to pull out is like took three and a half years.
0: I'm a bit more sensitive to this maybe than you are, Dan, but like forever, like I I don't like it when people tell me like you kind of have to pay your dues. Mm -hmm. And it kind of sounds like that's what you're saying. Yeah. Because I've been told that many times, you know, it's like piss and vinegar comes out. It's like, hold on, boy, you got to pay your dues. And I think what people are saying a lot of times is like kind of get in line. Like "You're, you're behind me, I've been here longer. It's not necessarily that you have more skill because I think the, the world used to kind of work that way. And I think a lot of people still think that way, especially older generations. So, But the way I think that we can start to think about it is not necessarily get in line. I've been here longer. But it's like when you talk about paying your dues, it's like, do you actually have the skills, the expertise, the knowledge, the network, all the tools that it's going to take to start your own business? And,
1: and the word that in my mind, when you said all that was power do you have the power and power comes from value over replacement? It comes from your ability to apply and execute knowledge. Accumulating that kind of power takes a lot of time.
0: Sometimes you, you tell yourself you're an A player, and I've certainly been in the situation, you go out and you try and prove to the world that you're an A player and they come back and they say, no, you're a C player. And you got to kind of reckon with that, right? It's like, oh, I tried to start my own business. I thought I had all these skills, tool, power, all this stuff. Like, no, I miscalculated. Like, I need to actually go back and brush up on my skills. And I've been in that situation before. But I do think that a lot of times it does take that confidence of saying like, hey, I'm an A player to go out and do it, you know? Because nobody's going to give you permission to do this stuff. You kind of have to take a leap of faith.
1: Well, Mikko's an A player for writing us this email. We appreciate it. We hope in some way we've addressed the question. And now the, I think the really biggest question, Ian, is if you're going to trade in your unemployable T-shirt, what T-shirt are you going to buy?
0: The first word that came into my mind, and I don't even know why it came into my mind, was uh, chaos.
1: The moment you get on the Texas road system, that we could just rename it chaos.
0: Exactly. And I think that there's a certain amount of chaos that needs to happen in a business too. Now, it doesn't need to be chaotic every day. Your employees, your team members, your co-founders—they don't need to feel like it's chaos in a bad way, where it's like unproductive. But like, there needs to be chaotic things happening. I think for for uh, growth to happen, right? There needs to be unexplainable things bouncing off and spaghetti flying on the wall and things like that. And so, I think the the real world is chaotic, and I think it's it's being comfortable with that chaos that makes you
1: successful as an entrepreneur a lot of times. So I might put chaos on my shirt. Yeah. When I, when you said chaos, I thought, yeah, like that's reality. And there's something in this episode about, you know, getting that tuning fork out and getting to the bottom of reality. And that's what entrepreneurship is fundamentally about is understanding the reality of how organizations work. And, you know, part of my critique of the unemployable t-shirt is like, oh, what does that mean again? Like, why aren't you just wearing a shirt that says business owner? What's the unemployable thing? You know, like you make too much money to be unemployable or like people don't, you don't play by the rules, man, or like none of this stuff is not going anywhere good for me. So uh, I think my t-shirt will say, uh, there is no I in team. (laughs) 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 Okay. Let's just move on to the next question.
0: Clear. We're not getting in the t-shirt business.
1: Oh that's thank God. A, you know so what? sad.
0: So many entrepreneurs, they move on from their first successful venture to open a a restaurant or be a T-shirt company, and those are two things that I never want to do.
1: Hey guys, great episode. Norman Peterson writes to say, "I'm listening to Naval's "How to Get Rich" podcast again," and he touched a nerve. He gives a particular timestamp, which I went and listened to, and I'll and maybe we'll even play a little bit here, where he does some debunking about networking.
0: Even if you yourself haven't made it yet, if you think you're going to make it by going out and networking and doing a whole bunch of meetings, you're probably incorrect. Yes, networking can be important early in your career. And yes, you can get serendipitous with meetings, but the odds are pretty low. And as we spent time talking about earlier... When you are just meeting people and hoping to get that lucky break, you're relying on type one luck, which is blind luck, and type two luck, which is hustle luck. But what you're not getting is type three or type four luck, which are the better kinds, where you spend time developing a reputation, working on something, developing a unique point of view, and being able to spot opportunities that others can't.
1: A busy calendar and a busy mind. As an entrepreneur living in Chiang Mai, attending the occasional digital nomad meetup, I found most of this to be a waste of time in terms of meeting people I can help or who can help me. This is partly due to the fact that the vast majority of digital nomads are not entrepreneurs, but freelancers. That's true. In a previous life, I was a real estate agent, an industry rife with worthless, quote, networking events. So how about an episode with a nice clickbait title like networking is bullshit? Thanks for all you do, Norman. Appreciate the question, Norman. I have a couple thoughts about this because I'm a digital nomad, number one, and I'll tell you something about digital nomading. It's pretty easy. Here's how you do it. I want to give my three-start, quick-start guide to becoming a digital nomad today, and you can too. Just pay me 19 on my Facebook page after a very personal rant. Okay, step number one, sell all your shit. Step number two, <laughs> book a ticket. To insert cheap city, you know, rent an apartment once you get there. Step number three, write about it on Facebook. and tell tell everybody.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was definitely my step three, yeah.
1: Look, life is hard and people do a lot of difficult things. That, what I just said, is not really one of them. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, just the fact that you're a digital nomad, it's maybe five or 10 years ago, that would have been a more more interesting filter or whatever. I just don't think it's that big of a filter right now. So that's one red flag that jumps out. But, you know, let's dig into what Naval says here. Cause he basically says where Norman linked up to, he says, if you think you're going to make it by going out and taking a bunch of meetings or just going to a bunch of meetings, Uh, that's not really the way to make it. And what he's saying is you need to create luck for yourself. Sure. Which is the promise of these events that you meet the right person or whatever, but there's four different kinds of luck. There's blind luck. There's hustle luck or persistence luck. There's spotted luck, which is like sort of you have a resource and you see somebody and, and then there's luck that finds you, which is the sort of luck that happens after you basically work your ass off for a long time and build interesting shit a lot of this ready at hand stuff is the worst kind of connections that can happen. Like, Oh, so-and-so is out of work. I saw them at the thing. And so I hired them. And like that story never goes anywhere. Good. You know, that person works for you for a few months does a mediocre job. Eventually like they don't work for you anymore. And that's the end of that piece of blind luck. But you know, luck that finds you is that, you know, one of my favorite John Mayer quotes is uh, stay at home on Friday nights and hustle. The party gets better. You, you, You get invited to better parties if you don't go to too many, and you work, and you build things that make you interesting to other people, and then they start inviting you to cool parties. And also, a common thing we say around here, which is networking, is a multiplier.
0: This is how it goes these days, right? Because I know the situation he's in, because I've been there before. It's like you said, it's not that hard to get to Chiang Mai these days. It's not that hard to quit your job, and it's not that hard to make $200 on Isn't Amazon. is no, like
1: off-roading involved? No, or sort so, of so, you high or... <laughs> so you show up to this event. High-security border passes? or
0: So you show up to this event at this cafe, and you're all kind of sitting around, you're like, ha-ha, ha-ha, ha we're in Chiang Mai, ha-ha, ha-ha. I don't have a job, ha-ha, ha And like, that's it. <laughs> Everybody just kind of looks at each other and like, Oh, what are we going to talk about next week? Like, we kind of went over the basics here, which is like, uh, we all showed up to the city because we read about it on the internet and like, nobody has a job and we're going to figure this out. It's yeah. going to be rad.
1: If you're going to an event that promises some kind of benefit or entertainment and there's no barrier to entry, that's not a good event to go to.
0: Let's talk about the barriers to entry and why those are important to come into these events. I
1: want to talk about one more thing before we get to the barriers to okay. entry. Which is the part of the reason I wanted to talk about Norman's question is because we run a networking group as a business, the Dynamite Circle. And part of what networking does by its very definition, it's made of some material that is attractive to a subset of people I'm going to call tool bags. And I looked up tool on Urban Dictionary. A tool is someone whose ego far exceeds their talent, intelligence, and likability, but is clueless regarding the fact and tries to compensate for it. And it's often tools who are hosting these events in the first place. And part of what our job is at the Dynamite Circle, and I might want to rephrase this without the tool thing, but like, part of our job running a networking group is to resist and prevent people from using it as a me, 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 what do I get? How do I mine this for all it's worth on day number one? And that's essentially what these no-filter promise-you-benefit events are. And so part of the ways we do that is by setting high bars and by setting filters. And you got to jump through hoops to ultimately get to these meetups. The more hoops you got to jump through, the better the networking is going to be. It's weird because I, I get the promise of networking. I mean, we run a networking event and I get the problem with it, which is I guess why we have a business in the space, which is, yeah, I get it. Like, If you don't have filters, if you don't have applications, if you don't have relevant people there, if you let predators show up, if you let toxic people show up, if you let people who are selfish, if they're tools, like all these people will screw up this stuff. And so you have to stop them. These people that are selfish about this, these situations, they're the ones who are most incentivized to do it in the short term, to participate, to host, to speak, to whatever. And if you want to have successful networking events, they often happen either like the DC where you have to go through an intense amount of filtering, application, moderation, community kind of policing. We all, you know, we know the rules, we know how to behave, all that kind of stuff. You have to go all through that or you have to go through the back door, the side door, which is often like, hey, so-and-so vouched for you and they invited you. Or in a lot of groups, it's like you did something really special or you sacrificed something really special. And so the other people saw that sacrifice and then they invited you to this thing. I'll tell you one of the things, that, this is specifically about Chiang Mai, because I've lived there half the year. I mean, I have used to visit Chiang Mai, but I didn't get invited to the cool entrepreneurial parties until I lived there for half the year, right? Because who wants to meet the guy who hasn't committed to living there? You might get the invite to the once a year party or whatever, but you might not get invited to, oh, hey, I'm barbecuing this weekend with five other people who own these sorts of businesses.
0: We've done a lot of these uh, episodes about networking, but I think the uh, the barriers to entry is definitely, it's definitely an interesting one and one that you should consider if you're throwing an event or if you're attending an event. If you're able to kind of show up right away, you should question that. And then if you're hosting too, think about how to get the best group of
1: people together. A lot of the best networking happens at the end of a lot of work and it becomes obvious who to network with at that point, you know? So back to Norman's question. I found most of this sort of meetup to be a waste of time in terms of meeting people I can help or who can help me. Couldn't agree more, Norman. Couldn't agree more.
0: I think you're right to say it's a waste of time. I do think, though, that wanting these types of interactions is totally natural and it's something that we should move towards. Like, yeah. And that's the reason why we created the DC is because we want to be in a safe space where we can talk about our businesses and figure out what the hell we're all up to, right? So I think that that it's valuable to be in a situation with smart people that care about you and your business. It's not valuable to just meet random people. Yeah. So how can you create that? Well, we've been working on it for 10 years. That's our answer. For you though, Norman, how can you create it for yourself? I think you're right to say you shouldn't just show up to random events anymore. Maybe you should yeah. create your own though.
1: I agree with you about that natural desire to make the connections, And even if it's something so simple as like a weekly sports match or a weekly chess match, or you sit down and you have wine tasting with four or five other people, or maybe it's once a month or whatever, people that really get it, people that you really respect. And then you have rules for what happens in the group and who gets invited. And that can be extremely valuable. One of the things that can happen even at these like broader networking events is you can meet one person. And it's that one person yep. that can open up the gate. Because when you're facing a challenge or looking for an opportunity in your business, having people that are in the same boat as you with a little bit of a different perspective is absolutely invaluable. I'm thinking right now to my group of business friends in here in Austin and in Chiang Mai, two places I spend most time. And it's like, those people are giving me the best advice because they really under they've taken the time to understand it wasn't this transactional thing where it's like, "Oh, this guy can give me this, and now I can get this It's like oh, that person really understands where I'm at, and so they like dropped a bomb on me last night. You know what I mean that really got me thinking kind of thing
0: Final thought for me on this networking idea here is that I think a lot of the reasons why these people show up to these events and they don't get anything out of them is because there's not a lot of definition around them too so Going back to like the people sitting in Chiang Mai saying like, hey, hey, I made it to Chiang Mai, like that can't be it, right? And an example of something of like up-leveling the conversation is like, I'm in Chiang Mai like you, right? Specifically to raise my golf game to be a scratch golf player. Like, uh-uh. ooh, that's an interesting group. Like I'm, I'm three strokes off. Like when I go to meet that person, I'm sure we're going to have tons to talk about yeah. because we're in a similar situation and like we have a similar angle. Just defining these groups a little bit more, niching down. And if all that happens is like one other person shows up, they might be your soulmate.
1: Yeah, I like it. Big shout to Mikko and Norman and all the rest of y'all who are inspiring us with your emails and voicemails. We appreciate it. I got to give a shout to Mikko's podcast. He interviewed me. It's called That Remote Life. Check it out at thatremotelife.com slash podcast. He interviews a bunch of people running location-independent business, including yours truly. So check out that app, of course. And we always love your emails and just to hear what you're up to. You can drop us a voicemail at tropicalmba.com slash voicemail. Email our producer, jane, at tropicalmba.com. You can email me, dan, at tropicalmba.com. The boss man, ian, at tropicalmba.com. We love to hear from you. And even if that's a critique, we'll take it.